early years, as the party's head, Jiang Zemin's position inside the CCP was not very secure. Not only did he have to confront pressures from the senior leaders in the party, but also he had to face the general public's dissatisfaction over the Tiananmen massacre. Meanwhile, China's foreign relations were on the rocks. Many countries called back their ambassadors. Trade and arms embargoes hit China's economy hard. Premier Li Peng was originally Jiang's immediate superior, but when Jiang was made general secretary, Li became Jiang's subordinate. It was somewhat awkward for both. At Politburo meetings, Jiang always sat next to Li, and they hosted the meetings together. Jiang often made decisions based on Li's facial expressions, so, outsiders called it the Jiang-Li system. To solidify his position inside the party, Jiang thought he needed to get on Li's good side. Since Li used to serve as Minister of Water Resources, Jiang, on his first national tour, visited the Three Gorges project, something Li had enthusiastically promoted. Next, Jiang actively lobbied for the project, and forced the National People's Congress to approve its preliminary plans. Jiang ignored the potential problems that the Three Gorges project might cause, to navigation, generation of electricity, relocation of residents, the ecosystem, the environment, and war preparedness. Jiang left the decision-making of this massive project to people like actors, actresses, model workers, and token minority representatives. The sole purpose was to please Li Peng. Jiang Zemin had always taken China's WTO accession as his achievement. In April 1999, after NATO air raids had begun, Jiang Zemin urged Zhu Rongji to leave as scheduled for the WTO negotiations in the U.S. If the negotiation was to succeed, Jiang as the general secretary would naturally get the credit, and it would be written into history as his achievements. Were the negotiation to fail, it would stand to deflate Zhu Rongji's arrogance, a prospect Jiang welcomed, as Zhu's substantial contributions at the time jeopardized Jiang's standing. However, considering the circumstances it seemed impossible for the negotiation to achieve anything. Were Zhu not to go though, a golden opportunity might be missed. Both Li Ping and Qian Qishan were against Zhu Rongji's visit to the U.S. They thought his appeasement diplomacy amounted to begging for favors and showing weakness. Zhu's attitude was evident. He knew that the agriculture, telecommunication and finance industry of China would be hurt by China's joining the WTO. Besides, given the low efficiencies of the state enterprises, many enterprises would go bankrupt if fair competition were to be allowed. Zhu thus didn't want to make too many concessions in his negotiations with the United States. But Jiang instructed him otherwise and told him to focus on winning the political battle. Zhu was prudent having every concession approved by Jiang. However, the CCP senior statesmen were unhappy even outraged with these concessions. Upon seeing their reactions, Jiang made Zhu Rongji a scapegoat, seamlessly shifted all the blames to him. In October 1999, Jiang urgently needed a way to improve China's relations with the West, and to quell popular discontent over the suppression of Falun Gong. It was for this reason, his thinking turned to the WTO. Jiang called a meeting of the Politburo demanding everybody's support for greater degrees of concessions. When Zhu Rongji negotiated with the U.S. delegation at the table, it was Jiang who called the shots in each move behind the scenes. The concessions made to gain WTO accession were far more than those proposed with appeasement diplomacy. On October 15, when both sides signed the agreement, Zhu Rongji draw upon the lesson he had learned, that great achievements make one's boss feel insecure, and didn't attend the signing ceremony. Nor did he attend the celebration party held at Zhang Nanhai that night. Newsweek magazine commented, 
that the WTO agreement made Zhu Rongji an invisible man. It was Zhang who was the most eager in regards to the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the CCP's reign. He wanted to have a huge portrait of himself, placed next to that of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, on the anniversary day. He wanted the army, navy and air force march before him, and enjoy the feel of being the chairman of the military commission, to show off the power to the world. When Zhu Rongji learned that the total cost of the celebration would be 180 billion yuan, that's 22 billion US dollars, and that this included the plans for elaborating ceremonial tributes, giving raises to public servants and retired staff, and creating new infrastructures for the celebration, he was furious and bit his lips not uttering a word. Zhang, by contrast, said, I think the celebration needs to have a look of great power. When it comes to activities celebrating the 50th anniversary, we need to think about its political impact, rather than be limited by finances. The money that Zhang lavishly spent on the extravaganza could have paid for the educations of 200 million students, or the daily needs of 30 million unemployed for a year. When Zhang Zeman imitated Deng Xiaoping shouting, Hello, comrades. He was not as confident as Deng, for Zhang knew that when Deng did the same, his reform brought people a couple of years of a better life. This time around, when Zhang had his celebration, some 100 million citizens, the Falun Gong practitioners had just been made enemies, with their friends and family included, it's a huge part of the population. CCP's leaders constantly need to be eulogized and praised with articles and books. Zhang Zeman also proceeded to hire three writers, Tang Wancheng, Wang Huning, and Liu Ji, to help achieve his political goals. Most of the Jiang's literary and oratory flair, if we are to call it such, came from some combination of the three. Tang Wancheng was born in October of 1940, graduated in 1964 from Department of CCP History at People's University of China. In 1989, Tang became the deputy director of the CCP's Institute on Policy Research, and was dubbed the top writer in Jiangnanhai. He was the main writer of Jiang Zeman's political report speech at the 16th Congress. While working at the Institute of CCP's Secretariat in 1980, Tang was responsible for collecting material and information about China's liberal intellectuals, such as Fang Lizzi, Wang Ruang, and Liu Binyan. All such figures were eventually thrown out of CCP, with material and information gathered by Tang, serving as the basis. In September 1987, Zhao Ziyong, with the backing of Deng Xiaoping, dismantled the institute. Tang's biggest contribution to Jiang Zeman's theory, as Jiang would have it to be called, was the creation of one of the three talks, known as the Talk of Politics. Tang was an expert on Mao Zedong, advised Jiang to follow Chairman Mao's style if he was to gain control of the Politburo. That is to say, instead of giving the power to one confident or close follower, have two or three high-ranking officials compete with one another internally, only have to finally come to Jiang for arbitration. Wang Huning was born on October 6, 1955. He had been a professor and advisor for PhD students in the Department of Political Science at Fudan University. This was before he went to work at CCP's Institute on Policy Research 
he was the true creator of the three represents. Jang admired Wang and his work almost to the point of obsession. He could recite paragraphs of Wang's work, before ever meeting him in person. Wang drafted for Jang a speech given at the fifth plenary of the 14th session of the party congress, entitled on 12 major relationships. Wang's largest contribution was the theory of the three represents, and the moving with times, both of which he formulated for Jiang. Wang created the three represents for Jiang, and taught him to memorize it. Communist Party must always represent the requirement of development of China's advanced productive forces, the orientation of the development of China's advanced culture, and fundamental interests of the overwhelming majority of the people in China. Scour all the official reports in China's media, if you will, and you will discover, that not a single person, including Jiang Zemin himself, could explain in clear terms, what the three represents are. The theory of three represents amounts to little more than a few empty words. A person with good judgment, wouldn't venture to boast about such a thing. But the theory is just too important to Jiang, for a doctrine, Jiang knows, is necessary for lasting power. Jiang exhausted his wits, trying a way to introduce the doctrine into the party constitution, and that of the nation. And the aftermath of Jiang's efforts, could still be felt even after Hu Jintao took over as the general secretary, chairman of the state and head of the Central Military Commission, who was obligated to uphold the three represents. Similarly, most any speech that an official would make must be anchored by the doctrine. The nationwide study and implement of the doctrine, hold three represent up to ridicule instead. The media reported that a woman said, my daughter-in-law gave birth to such a chubby son, thanks to the three represents. Some reported that first-class public restrooms had been built in the guidance of the three represents. On a wall of a rural slaughterhouse, a slogan was painted in huge characters three represents guides the work of butchering. Wang had once been an assistant to the chairman, and named by Jiang a member of CCP's Central Committee at the 16th Congress. After Jiang began to lose power, however, Wang's career suffered too, because he revealed the secret about the true authorship of the three represents. Jiang had grown furious with him. Liu Ji was born in October of 1935, in Anqing, of Anhui province, and was assigned to work in Shanghai, after graduated from Department of Hydraulic Engineering at Beijing's Tsinghua University. Then, he became Vice President of China's Academy of Social Sciences. Liu's theoretical strength gave full play to the building up of the so-called Doctrine of the Wise Master, which attempted to paint Jiang as the party leader, with an open mind. Liu was very close to Jiang, although not a family member he called Jiang's wife's sister-in-law. He would move about freely in front of Jiang, and would visit Jiang's residence without prior notice. If he wanted a change, he would travel to Jiang's residence by car. If Wang Yiping was in a good mood, she would cook a few southern dishes for him. It was absolutely crucial for Jiang to be coached by Liu. Liu knew exactly how to improve Jiang's craft of power politicking. Jiang had a few long talks with Liu, on how to achieve such things and later came to respectively call Liu the master of the state. Afterward, Liu openly showed support for several reform-minded intellectuals. Zhang began to keep a distance from him.
1998, in the Yangtze River region, a small-scale flood triggered a huge disaster of the century. Nearly 400 million people were affected, and direct economic losses were over 300 billion yuan, that's 36 billion US dollars. The reason was that Jian Zeman, like Mao Zedong and many other CCP high-ranking officials, deeply believed in fortune-telling Fang Shui, to guard the levy, and protect his dragon vein, refused to divert the flood. On August 6, 1998, the water level at Changsha, reached 44.68 meters. According to the state council, the floodgate at Jingjiang had to be opened, so that water may be diverted to the floodway. Residents in Jingjiang's floodway moved twice to prepare for the water diversion. And the party committee of Hubei province requested the action many times. The floodgate, however, never opened. Jiang Zeman had issued an order, that nearby military troops must all work on the levee. He commanded that the troops stand united with the people, guarding the levee in this decisive battle, even at the cost of death, seeking a full victory. Thus the flood diversion plan was never implemented. Premier Zhu Rongji and Vice Premier Wen Jiabao followed Jiang's order, with great reluctance. As a result, the water level built up to an uncharted level of 45.22 meters. After the death of Deng Xiaoping, Jiang's wish for absolute control over the military grew stronger. He needed a legitimate reason to dispatch and employ a large number of troops in time of peace. When the Yangtze River was threatening to flood at almost every stretch, Jiang grabbed the opportunity. Following Jiang's orders, more than 10 corps, 300,000 officers and soldiers, 114 major generals, lieutenant generals and generals, and over 5,000 officials at the regiment and division levels, were mobilized. However, they were ordered to engage in military training, unrelated to the flood relief. During the flood, a total of 7 million troops and 5 million civilian reserves were used. The total number of soldiers involved was higher than that of the major battles, of Waihai, Liaoshan and Pinjin, whose victories paved the way for the CCP to seize power in China. What's more, the flood relief troops were frequently ordered to shift military bases, which had nothing to do with the flood, and made the already exhausted troops running around in vain. As it turned out, the honorable cause of flood relief and emergency rescue, gave Jiang a legitimate excuse to test his authority and control over the military. At the levee in Jingjiang city over a military map, in the presence of many media, Jiang donning a military uniform and a combat hat, acted out his part, as the commander-in-chief. Through this operation, Jiang truly established his control over the military. Objecting to the flood diversion plan, Jiang ordered that the levee be guarded with human lives. The civilian built dikes ruptured the Peizhou, Jijiang and Jiangsenzhou area of Jiayu County. The levee along the main channel of the Yangtze River broke. The high and strong waves hit the populated cities and towns. In 24 hours, the land turned into an ocean. Countless lives perished. Heartbreaking cries could be heard throughout the area. There was nothing the survivors of the flood could do to help. Even the troops on the boats, were having a hard time staying afloat. The rescue efforts were severely hindered. Many families were torn apart. Entire families died in the flood. Many bodies were never recovered. On August 7, the main levee of the Yangtze River located in the Jiajiang section ruptured. The officials panicked, and the situation turned chaotic. The commander didn't know what to do, and ordered to throw anything mobile into the rupture to block the flood. Five million tons of rice, wheat and soybeans, more than 50 trucks and 18 wrecked boats, were thus dumped into the waters. Later a 200-member special force group from Zhangjiakou, who were trained in levee repair came, and build pilings around the rupture. 
Afterward, they used pilings to stabilize the prefabricated panels, then, they poured in mud and rocks, eventually sealing the opening. The numerous ruptures caused tens of thousands of death, and more than 50 billion yuan property loss. Also, diseases broke out in the disaster area. Refugees tried to escape from the area. Those could not travel as fast as the spread of the disease died on the journey. Only those who would leave the loved one behind to die, could escape and survive. Many survivors became the only one alive in the family. By mid-August, the flood had forced 240 million people from their homes. While all of this was happening, Jiang Zemin invited 15 prominent directors and actors to Zhang Nanhai. On the piano, Jiang played, while singing along with young actresses, an evening in the suburb of Moscow, an old Russian love song. At the time when the Yangtze River turned into an ocean, Jiang, at the top of his lung, led the whole party singing a popular song, The Ocean, My Home. On August 13, when the ruptures were repaired, and the flood receded, Jiang went to Hubei province, tightly flanked by military police officials. He held a microphone, and into the TV camera, shout out slogans such as believe firmly, and persist in this decisive battle. Jiang directed the media to systematically cover up this major policy mistake. Government officials were required to repeat lies about casualties and property losses. The official numbers were set extremely low. The actual casualties and the amount of property loss were more than 50 times of the official statistics. Jiang utilized the media mouthpieces, and turned the tremendous disaster of his making, into opportunities to praise himself, as the glorious core of the party, who was leading the people from one victory to the next. A new personality cult was in the making. The tone of the CCP's propaganda and Jiang's speeches, thus elevated to a new pitch. The CCP-controlled newspapers and magazines pretended to quote international media to further glorify Jiang. They lauded Jiang with unabashed and rather ludicrous titles, setting him besides Mao and Deng, as the men of greatness. In 1984, an agreement arranging the return of Hong Kong to mainland China in 1997, was signed between British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and Chinese Premier Zhao Ziyang. Both leaders promised to attend the Hong Kong return ceremony. In 1997, Zhao requested to attend the ceremony in Hong Kong. Zhang exploded, Absurd! pounding his fist on the table. He ordered Luo Gan to step up the security of Zhao's residence to keep him firmly under house arrest. The narrow-minded Jiang Zemin, who delighted in flattery, couldn't stand the thought of letting Zhao take credit. Therefore, he disallowed the public from knowing the fact. In the CCP's propaganda campaign afterward, Zhao was either blurred or cut out of photos that bore witness of the historical moment. Jiang ordered the Ministry of Propaganda to shift the public attention towards the handover of Hong Kong. The ceremony marking Hong Kong's return was to be the focus of the world's attention, a rare and historical event. Jiang was extremely eager to seize the occasion, and make a show of himself. Some CCP high-ranking officials stated at one meeting, that the return of Hong Kong, though an important and much-anticipated event, was not something to boast about. For the sake of the nation and party's image, 
the general secretary of the party should stay in Beijing. This made Jiang very upset and shaken, for his presence at the event would have implications for personnel arrangements to be made at the party's 15th Congress. The uncompromising Jiang thus insisted on going to Hong Kong. On June 30, 1997, Jiang arrived in Hong Kong in high spirits. At a home with seniors, he spoke people from Shanghai, in Shanghai dialect about his skills at Mahjong. At the shopping center, he greeted an arranged welcoming crowd, in Mandarin Chinese, an accent of the Yangzhou dialect. Jiang couldn't speak Cantonese, but that didn't deter him, he would mimic Cantonese all the same. After seeing Jiang who despite his title of President of China, came across as somehow bizarre and bereft of self-esteem, the people of Hong Kong couldn't help but frown upon him. On June 30, as it rained heavily, the troops marched to Hong Kong beneath a sky of dark clouds. Between midnight of June 30 and early morning of July 1, the governments of China and Great Britain went through the procedures relating to the transfer of Hong Kong's authority. At the gathering, Jiang who was the media focus during the event, made a speech in his capacity as the President of China. He repeated the word of joint declaration that Zhao had co-signed, the policy of one country, two systems, Hong Kong is to be governed by the people of Hong Kong, and that it should be a high level of autonomy would not change for 50 years, he declared, for this was to be the policies guiding the central government for years to come. With those words still resounding in the air, the color of Hong Kong's sky gave way to the color red. Soon it was decided that Hong Kong's special administrator was to be named by Beijing authority. The policies of the Hong Kong government was now only to be implemented after final approval from the central government in Beijing. And the Hong Kong people's freedom of speech soon was restricted among other changes. Within a few years, Hong Kong, once known as one of the four Asian dragons and the pearl in the Orient for its prosperity and freedom, had fallen so fast as to had to request funding from the central government. The move sparked complaints throughout the island. Before Hong Kong's return to China, when China and the United Kingdom were negotiating the transition of power, Beijing intended to establish Article 23 of the Basic Law, to govern treason and crime of subversion, to extend CCP's totalitarian control, to Hong Kong. The proposal received strong opposition from many circles in Hong Kong, and the United Kingdom. To secure a smooth transition of power, Beijing publicly announced, that it would delay the passage of Article 23. Due to the need to maintain the appearance of the one country, two systems, Jiang could not apply the same totalitarian suppression of Falun Gong in Hong Kong, as in mainland China. Hong Kong is an international center, and major tourist destination, where Falun Gong practitioners are distributing truth materials. Jiang could not stand this happening under his nose, he considered the Article 23 legislation, to be the best way to get rid of Falun Gong in Hong Kong. In 2002, when the Hong Kong government facing reappointment, Jiang expressed unreserved support for Tung Chi Hua's second term. Secretary of Justice Al Si Lung, who was born in a family of underground CCP member, also continued for a second term. While on Sang Chan Fang who had always been known for speaking her mind, and was called the conscience of Hong Kong, was forced by Jiang to resign. Besides, Secretary of Security Regina Plow Suk Yi, was eager to show Jiang her ability and loyalty and could hardly wait. The time was right for Jiang's plan in Hong Kong. Not surprisingly, soon after Tong assembled his new cabinet, the department just as quickly announced the Hong Kong government's decision to establish Article 23 of the Basic Law. The public comment period on the proposed Article 23 was only three months long. A more detailed proposal was to be published no later than the beginning of the following year.
The proposal was to be sent to the legislature to be reviewed and passed. Elsie Lung said she had already communicated with Beijing on this matter. The issue of Article 23 received tremendous attention. Opposition from various groups in Hong Kong, and Chinese people the world over, remained strong, and was getting stronger. July 1, 2003, six years after Hong Kong's return, 500,000 Hong Kong residents took to the streets marching. The protest against the Hong Kong government proposed Article 23, was far larger than expected. It's not only shocked Hong Kong, but also took the world by surprise. While the CCP's media reported differently to the mainland people, that 60,000 people celebrated the anniversary of Hong Kong's return to China. The demonstration in Hong Kong shook Beijing. The political forces in Hong Kong became divided under the pressure from public opinion. On the evening of July 6, Chairman of the Liberal Party, James Tian, announced his resignation. Secretary of Security, Regina Iplausukyi, had very low public support, and Financial Secretary Antony Lung Kam Chung was exposed for his financial scandal. Both resigned from their posts. Article 23 just couldn't get enough votes to pass. By then, Jiang had lost, and could not turn the situation around. The notorious Tung Chi Hua, who kowtowed to Jiang at the expense of Hong Kong people, officially resigned from the Hong Kong chief executive position on March 10, 2005, after losing his main benefactor Jiang Zemin, and was deemed as damaged goods, by the CCP regime in Beijing. On August 15 the year 2000, before Jiang Zemin visited the U.S., to drum up momentum, and demonstrate to the West how open-minded and wise he was, Jiang arranged for Mike Wallace, the host of CBS's 60 Minutes, to interview him. Jiang pretended to have a magnanimous attitude, and indicated that the purpose of the interview was to promote the friendship between China and the U.S. However, Wallace was quite straightforward with him, and hit the nail on the head when he pointed out that Jiang was the last major communist dictator in the world, and that Jiang sounded like a full-fledged politician, with no candor. Jiang, lack of the most basic concept of the law, had many embarrassing moments in the interview. For example, he didn't fully understand what positions he held, and forgot some very basic facts, such as that the National People's Congress simply does not have the right to elect the members of the CCP's standing committee. He claimed that the press should be a mouthpiece of the party, and that China has a different situation from the West for implementing democracy. Of course, the most laughable part was Jiang's smear of Falun Gong, by saying that Falun Gong founder, Li Hongji, had claimed to be a reincarnation of the Lord Buddha, and a reincarnation of Christ, and preached an apocalyptic doctrine about the end of the earth, and how the planet would explode. Jiang had also said that Falun Gong had driven thousands of its members to commit suicide. With the mention of Christ, he was trying hard to incite hatred from the American public. The truth is, though, that Falun Gong's founder never claimed to be a reincarnation of Buddha or Jesus. What's more, in 98 and 99, Mr. Lee told thousands of people in a large audience, that the destruction of the earth that had been predicted by many to occur in 99 would not take place, and Falun Gong's teaching is against killing and suicide. Jiang was so eager to spread hatred, 
that his outlandish claims turned into rumor-mongering. From the special interview with Mike Wallace, people obviously were unable to see Jiang's wise image, but instead, witnessed his demeanor as a rascal, and his loose tongue. It must be pointed out, that when Jiang lied to Wallace in his capacity as the head of state, he took advantage of China's national prestige to slander Falun Gong, and in turn, harmed the entire prestige of China. Jiang was satisfied though, with his talking and laughing merrily in front of the American reporter. However, only three months later, he turned fumed with rage, before a Hong Kong junior reporter. Jiang was meeting with Tung Chi Hua, Hong Kong's chief, who came to Beijing to report on his post. When a female reporter asked Jiang if Tung Chi Hua's second term was assured by Jiang's imperial order, Jiang grew so furious, that he accused the Hong Kong reporters, with his incoherent Cantonese and English, of asking simple and naive questions. He said to the reporters in English, you are too simple, too naive, and I'm angry. The whole process lasted four minutes. He even shamelessly asked the reporters to forget professional ethics, just shut up and make money. Wallace didn't make Jiang explode, however, a young woman reporter easily did that. Jiang, tearing up his mask, exploded and showed his true color in front of the world. This must have made Wallace regretful. After venting his rage before Hong Kong reporters, Jiang probably realized that he had crossed the line. He then pointed his fingers at the reporters, and warned that if their reports had deviations, they would be held responsible. The Hong Kong's media was shocked by Jiang's admonishment. Nearly all the daily newspapers reported the story with very eye-catching headlines, describing Jiang as, behaving rascally. The CCP's believing in spreading atheism. Its philosophy of fighting haven, fighting earth, and fighting people, is against the very essence of Chinese tradition and culture, that is respect of God, haven, and earth, and belief of harmony between mankind and nature. The CCP destroyed China's natural environment and cultural heritage. Lakes, such as Beiyangdian and others, were dried up. The traditional design and layout of ancient cities, such as Beijing, were violated. Many historical sites were destroyed. Even though the CCP is atheism in name, many high-ranking party officials deeply believe in fortune-telling, yin-yang, and feng shui. Before Mao entered Beijing, he sought advice from an aged Taoist monk, who told Mao four numbers, 8341. Mao used 8341 to name his entourage. Years later, people realized that Mao died at 83, and had been at the CCP's hem for exactly 41 years. Jiang does not care for real Chinese traditions at all. He depends on the heresies of Feng Shui to bless his power. In order to turn around Beijing's Feng Shui, he did not bother to improve the environment, instead, he pinned his hope on adding water to Lake Beiyangdian. Instead of removing Mao's tomb from the center of the city, he increased the height of the flagpole facing Mao's tomb in the Tiananmen Square to counteract the Yinqi. Jiang is cautious about not running into bad luck. Although he often travels afar, Jiang has never visited the city of Zhenjiang, the name of which in Chinese means literally to suppress Jiang, as he is afraid of misfortune. He is also very sensitive to the auspiciousness of speech of those under him, 
whoever says anything that Jiang rules to be taboo, will meet with punishment. When Jiang visited Hunan province, the party chief there Wang Maolin told Jiang, We follow you when we were in Beijing, but here in Hunan, you can count on me. To an average Chinese person, this is a clear expression of a host's eagerness to please. But Jiang thought Wang was trying to seize his power, and grew extremely displeased. Not long, Jiang reassigned Wang to a post with no real power. In 1996, Jiang visited a famous Buddha temple on his way to southern China. After offering incense in the main hall, Jiang went to the bell tower. The abbot tried hard to dissuade Jiang from tolling the bell, kind benefactor, you must not toll the bell here. Jiang grew annoyed, and ignored the abbot and tolled the ancient bell. The abbot stayed silent and wept for a long time. Later, it was learned that the abbot knew Jiang Zeman as the reincarnation of the king of toads. The bell he told would trigger the water species to bring troubles to China. After the incident, the flood would hit China every year and be difficult to quell. From that point on, it did seem that water-induced disasters grew more severe in China. In 1998, which was Jiang's zodiac year of the tiger, the flood disaster was unprecedented. In the ensuing year, flooding proved to be frequent. A rhyme was apt to passing on in Beijing. Jiang Zeman, Jiang Zeman, the river's water, drowns men. In other words, it was implied that Jiang came to power would bring a waterborne disaster. In handling the flood in 1998, Jiang refused to open the floodgate to divert the flood, for fear of ruining his dragon's vein. He blindly believed a phony Feng Shui master, who got popular in Jiangnanhai. As a result, a small flood turned into a disaster of the century. To him, hundreds of millions of people's lives, are nothing compared to his dragon's vein. Jiang's inclination for water is well known. He has had an affinity for water all his life. And even on foreign visits, he has found it hard to resist submerging himself in water. Pictures of him swimming in Hawaii, and the Dead Sea have been widely shown in the media. Most of the hotels he has chosen to stay at, have had aquatic creatures on display. When he claps, his ten fingers splayed, rather than together, something unique. Outside of China, a number of persons who have studied the Book of Revelation in the Bible, Nostradamus Book Century, and Prophecy Book Pushback Pictures, have in recent years come upon prophecies that would point to the unique role Jiang has played in the present day, as well as the disasters he would bring to China and the world at large. It's the famous French prophet, Notre-Dame's, who noted that Jiang's origin has a deep connection with water. He wrote, from the three water signs, would be born a man, who would celebrate Thursday as his holiday. His renown, praise, rule, and power will grow on the land and sea, bringing trouble to the east. Jiang Zemin was born in Jiangsu, which is the first water. Jiang was first promoted to an important position in Shanghai, whose high is the second water. When Jiang moved to Beijing and became the highest leader of China, he lived in Jiangnanhai, again, high the third water. Many of the persons who promoted Jiang had names related to water. Take for example, Zhang Iping's ping related to water. When in Shanghai, Jiang was promoted by Wang Daohan. Wang implies water. Or Bo Yibo's Bo also has a lot to do with water. Toads prefer water to soil and detest fire, which would explain why Jiang so disliked Zhao Ziyang, the Yang signifies the sun. And Chao Shi, Shi means rock. And Ju Rongji, Rong, metal. Jiang also likes names with auspicious meanings. People such as Tang Wancheng, born as a scholar. Jia Tingan, peaceful government. Yu Si Gui, lucky and prosperous, and Wang Huning, 
peace in Shanghai, were promoted because of their names. Li Changchun was one of Jiang's favorite because his name meant forever spring. The Tang Dynasty book pushed back pictures, predicted in its 50th image, the flood of 1998, and Jiang's crackdown on Falun Gong. The section song refers to Jiang, a zodiac tiger in the year of the tiger, failing to handle the flood well, owing to self-interest. The results of this were a grave disaster. To block the rupture in the dike's soldiers and civilians threw large amounts of grains into the river. The violent flooding indeed destroyed many a barn filled with rice. The valuable goods were lost in but a moment's time. The section Chen implied that during a time when the confrontation between the communism and free world is approaching to the end, and the world is facing tremendous changes, in the final showdown of good against evil, Jiang's police and law enforcement machinery are acting like jackal and wolves. A textual comment to the book says, after the flood of 1998, people won't get time to recover and replenish yet, Jiang again, started another sweeping ordeal.